0: And it it and I'm Friends, welcome. Purim Sameach. Happy Purim to you. I see only Eileen has shown up in costume today. So the shame on the rest of us. <laughs> but no, Eileen thank you for bringing your Purim spirit. I hope everyone is having a meaningful Purim to the extent that you engage. We at VBM just had a um, a great forum party here last night and just this morning had a, a, a learning session, which recording you can get. And Gary was um, at those and, and and is somehow still here, which is wonderful. So thank you for being here. This is session 39 on kindness. I can't wait to uh, engage your thoughts on this topic of heat lam Jut, a life of co- of constantly learning, constantly learning. Let's start with a um, a poll question. Learning from everything and everyone is hard for me because I'm really just not so into a lot of people. (laughs) Option two, I'm really just not so interested in learning about things I don't know about. Option three, I'm really more into entertainment than learning. Or four, oh my gosh, I'm just learning everywhere all the time. (laughs) Right? So, option four means you are a constant learner, not the first three options, admit some barriers to um, to our learning, I'm gonna submit, okay. Let's see what we got, if we have results yet. Okay, nobody said they're just not into a lot of people, although I'm sure that's partially true for many of us. <laughs> no, um, 29% say I'm not so interested in learning about things I don't know much about. Nobody said I'm more into entertainment than learning, right? That they'd rather just go to the opera or son's game rather than a class. Um, And 71% said, oh my gosh, I'm just learning everywhere all the time. Of course, that's what this group would say because this is a a group of (laughs) learners. Okay, beautiful. Here we go. Hitz Lam is a new and wonderful way of life, not just in the study of Torah, but in all areas of life, right? What an exciting way to live, he wants to argue. Here is one of the origins of the idea in Pirkei Avot. Ben Zoma says, who is wise? One who learns from every person. As it says, from all my students, I gained wisdom, right? The wise one is not somebody who has a doctorate or who read the whole Talmud. It's not what somebody knows, but rather it is the ability to learn from everyone. <laughs> Indeed, at the core of Judaism is a commitment to lifelong learning. It seems Benjamin Franklin was inspired by this mission as teaching. I know he studied a lot, so maybe he studied this mission also. Because here's what Benjamin Franklin wrote in the Poor Richard's Almanac. Who is wise? Literally, exact words. He that learns from everyone. Who is powerful? One that govern. He that governs his passions. Who is rich? He that is content. Who is that? Nobody. <laughs> so he gives a little cynical twist at the end, which, which the Mishnah doesn't give. But he must have for, for sure read that Mishnah because he literally is. Who is wise? Who is powerful? Who is rich? That is exactly Pirkei Avot four one. So he was a he was a, a great scholar, but. Um, in any case, uh, he's got that fun twist at the end. Comment uh, commenting on this Mishnah from Pirkei Avot, the Bartanura teaches, "He who learns from every person, even though that person that he learns from is lesser than he, since he is not, since he is not concerned about his honor and learns from the lesser ones, it shows that his wisdom is for the sake of heaven and not to boast and revel in." Right, that some people want so they want wisdom for social capital. Right, why do I want to learn something so I can tell people what I know? Right, Uh, but one who isn't in it for for social capital, but for the sake of learning, um, he wants to say is what is the deeper spirit here. Reb Simcha Zissel Ziv, the founder of the Kelm yeshiva, lots of jokes about Kelm, writes, Every person that has a special feeling for a certain endeavor will be extremely sensitive when she sees any little thing having to do with it. For example, when a tailor meets someone, he will immediately look at his clothes, the shoemaker at the shoes, the milliner at the hat. Similarly, a business person will be sensitive to any words or actions that have impact on his business. Another type of person would not see or hear any of these things because her heart is not given to inquire and investigate anything from these matters. If one is not engaged in such activities, one will not notice them when performed by others. If this is the case, one who learns from every person, behold, this is a great business person. They trade in everything and thus they understand the necessity to learn from the other and they are called wise. Continues, if in all my actions, I am only learning, then I always see a place for improvement and great wholeness. Anyone who wants to work on themselves needs to understand well the depth of these things. So that's very interesting. If we extended that to an ethical consciousness as well, we might say, Oh, we have our own sensitivities. Maybe I have a disability, so I'm very sensitive to disability issues. Maybe I um am, you know, am a minority. And so I'm very sensitive when people talk talk disparagingly about that minority group, right? Maybe I um have some other kind of you know trigger based on my own trauma that I'm very sensitive to. But he says, Oh, yeah, everyone is going to be sensitive to things in their realm. But by learning from everyone, it expands our realm of sensitivity. Yes, I'm not the one affected by that type of hate speech. And yet I am sensitive to it because I see I see you, right? I've learned from you, right? I'm not sensitive to, um, to that type of marginalization. That's not really my experience, but I see it. And so part of learning from everyone can be a form of allyship in that um, we are sensitive to things that are not our personal issues. Um, and so that's, I think part of what he's talking about in terms of, uh, they're also about different trades. The rabbis instruct us, Rabbi Yochanan said, if the Torah had not been given, we could have learned modesty from a cat, right? Which is a joke, not stealing from <laughs> ants, which is a joke, fidelity from a pigeon and proper sexual relations from a rooster who appeases <laughs> its who appeases its partner before engaging in sexual behavior. Okay. <laughs> so... <laughs> Um, the, the, you know the rabbis have a sense of humor, also, but they're they're partially teaching us that um, that not everything we learn is through revelation, so to speak, but is also through natural morality by observing the world around us. Ravobi teaches on this. There's no place for arrogance in Hitzlamdut. <laughs> if I do some action well, behold, I have not done anything to be proud of, because I'm only mitzlamayid practicing. And when I am made, I recognize that the action was not done perfectly. He introduces an important idea here, that everything we're doing is practicing. Right? We might think of ourselves as performing or just living, but everything we're doing, if it's in the spirit of learning, is just another form of practicing. Everything is just the training ground or, or a learning laboratory, if you will. Rav is teaching here that in our learning, whether experiential or textual, must be constant. We are forever in a state of practicing, never quite perfecting our knowledge and skill, as there's always room for improvement and to learn more. I've always wondered if that's why some people call their business a practice, right? It's my practice, right? Um, Just as there is value to learn from others, there's equal value to learning with others. The Talmud teaches Rabbi Chama, son of Rabbi Hanina, said, what is the meaning of that which is written? Iron sharpens iron, so a person sharpens the countenance of their friend. This verse comes to tell you that just as these iron implements, one sh- one sharpens the other when they are rubbed against each other, so too, when Torah scholars study together, they sharpen one another in their legal study. Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel writes, the prophet is not a mouthpiece, but a person not an instrument, but a partner, an associate of God, emotional detachment would be understandable only if there were a command which required the suppression of emotion, forbidding one to serve God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. But God, we are told, asks not only for action, but above all for love, awe, and fear. Learning then is not to be viewed as an end in and of itself, but rather a vehicle by which one comes closer to God. By extension, When one learns with another, they have the opportunity to become closer and be in awe of one another, right? The learning with a partner is not just about the content, but about the relationship. Indeed, Hithlamdut has the power to transform one into a more loving, caring individual, right? So we might've said, why should we learn from everyone? Because learning is great. But also what we're seeing here, learning from everyone is also great (laughs) for relationships if people feel we're interested in what they have to say, right, um, and we genu- genuinely are, it builds mm-hmm. kind of a mutuality, a respect. Dr. Frankel, a Holocaust survivor mm-hmm. and founder of Logotherapy, mm-hmm. writes, between stimulus and response, there's a space. In that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth of our... and our freedom. I've noticed in my house something unusual about my son's experience in Jewish preschool. Recently, more and more upon getting home from school, my four-year-old son Shay tells tells, uh, my wife Shoshana and I how much he loved that day's yoga session. Over the years, my kids have been exposed to this kind of practice throughout their preschool experiences and seeing its impact on my son on days when he does yoga and how he seems more centered and more thoughtful has made me wish this experience were given to kids of all ages throughout the Jewish world and in society at large. Of course, there's so many areas of development in preschool, from letters and numbers to social skills to moral growth. But with all that noise, holy noise often, I want to make the case for just how important it is to learn how to breathe, calm oneself, sit in silence, expand one's consciousness, and increase one's attention span. We know all about how to get our kids ahead in math and science, but what are we doing to help them learn to boost their sense of self-awareness, increase their oxygen circulation, and reduce their stress? Mindfulness education is necessary for numerous reasons. For an obvious one, we all know of of the importance of physical health. Yoga and meditation are helpful not just for the mind, but for our kids' growing bodies. But also, studies from 2016 to 2019 show that 9.8% of children have ADHD, 9.4% suffer from anxiety, 8.9% have behavior problems, and 4.4% suffer from depression. In a world in which technology has made mental health one of the greatest crises of our time, the need to proactively improve our kids' mental strength and spiritual resiliency cannot be ignored. Emerging research studies also suggest that yoga can help children with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder by improving the core symptoms of ADHD, including inattentiveness, hyperactivity, and impulsivity. Certified yoga teacher Dr. Marilyn Y wrote in Harvard Health Publishing, it can also boost school performance in children with ADHD. Yoga specifically and mindfulness in general are catalysts for better learning. The New York Times reports, At this age, mindfulness practice can also help children in school. A recent study found that fourth and fifth graders who took a four-month meditation program demonstrated improvements in cognitive control, working memory, and math test scores. Other studies have shown that mindfulness can be especially helpful to children with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder and also reduce children's aggression, anxiety, and stress. Furthermore, mindfulness is indeed crucial for moral development. A quieter and more controlled mind has great potential for expanding the capacity for empathy. It improves one's midot, character traits, such as menuchat nefesh, equanimity, hitalamdut, our topic today, learning from everything, and anivut, humility, or managing the ego. These are but three of many midot that can be cultivated through mindfulness. And beyond a moral and ethical aid, mindfulness can be an explicitly spiritual experience. Yes, our schools often do a great job of teaching Jewish holidays, the Hebrew language, and even even Jewish rituals. But they're often not sufficiently teaching children how to search for and feel God's presence, for example. The starting place of the religious journey should be the realization of the soul, as the search for God is not primarily intellectual, but achieved through the channel of the soul. By training their minds today, our kids will be equipped to have better and more meaningful Jewish prayer as they get older. But a prayer curriculum, as important as it can be, cannot replace a mindfulness one. A mindfulness practice expands the inner container that we call the soul, whereas a prayer practice is an expression emanating from that container. The enterprises, while still separate pedagogically, are in fact linked. Maybe most importantly, spiritual practices honor our children's innate dignity. Through mindfulness, they learn that they're valuable not only for their academic achievements or soccer goals scored, but also just for being themselves. In school, we're very good at teaching kids about doing, but we don't lastingly teach students about being. We give them a long to-do list, but not a space to fulfill a to-be list. In our chaotic world that will only make our kids more anxious as they grow up, It is, in my view, indispensable that we give them a strong foundation, not only in pure academic skills, but in healthy breathing and mindfulness. If our children do not go on to live mentally healthy lives, everything else they learn in school will be of diminished benefit. Instead of letting them be overwhelmed by the world, we should be teaching them how to answer God's greatest question in Genesis. Where are you? As humans, we need to be training ourselves to be able to answer not like Adam, who responds that he was hiding from God because he was afraid, but like Abraham, who boldly proclaims, here I am. I believe the way we accomplish this should be to have yoga or other forms of mind-body meditational experiences offered to three-year-olds, fourth graders, summer campers, high school seniors, adults, and everyone in between. Mindfulness education should be available not only in preschools, but also in day schools, Hebrew schools, camps, and synagogues. All of us, young children and lifelong learners alike, can think about how to become more present, to listen, learn, and make each moment filled with curiosity. Only with practice can we learn to be like the psalmist who says, return my soul to restfulness. dut and all of its expressions, including those we explored above and more, serves as a basis and springboard for being there for ourselves and in turn for one another, propelling us toward greater acts of kindness. Okay, friends. I would love to open our conversation about jut, how we can live uh, a life of constant learning. Yes, Gary.
1: Well, I'll start off. I want to go back to the uh, your first part uh, of the lecture when we talked about how do we how do we do that. And obviously, you all know I'm in the healthcare profession by now. Uh, you know, I've always taught my students both in the classroom and clinically that uh, we're in a profession of lifelong uh, self-directed learning and when i explained that to them it's not just about in the healthcare field but it's it's also about life and that everybody and everything uh can and should be a learning experience you don't stop your learning uh you know when you finish medical school or residency program and you don't stop living when you go to work that everybody has something to learn uh, even if you disagree with disagree with them, uh, and we see that in my opinion, of what's what's going on now uh, in our political political scene, people just don't want to listen uh, uh, to the other side. They just shut them down, and then it relate. Then it just happens to be well. We see what's happening uh, not in only in our country but in, in in the world. And and, and another comment more uh, more directed to the Jewish world. Would be very nice that if uh Jews of all persuasion, left to right, uh would open themselves up to learn from each other. Uh I know for I have very close friends for many years that are Orthodox. Uh and if you look at their library, their library, Jewish library and my Jewish library are like completely opposite. Uh I mean, I have traditional text, I have very uh, liberal text and anything and everything in between because. You know, I, I want to continue to learn. And we can't, we have difficulty discussing Jewish issues because we, we, we you know, we just come, uh, we, we just can't come to a point at least discussing Jewish texts because we come from uh, uh, a completely different mindset. You know, if I bring up something about Joshua Heschel and they'll go, who's that? You know, so uh, it would be nice that that we live by the words that our Jewish sages uh, uh, tell us, I think we'd have a much better uh, and stronger Jewish world. Amazing, Gary.
0: Thank (laughs) you for that. Both the the parts around how um, in all of our professions, we need to constantly be learning and how important that is to remaining sharp and in touch and helpful, Um, but also addressing polarization. How do we flip our judgment into curiosity? Right? Imagine if we approach people that we strongly disagreed with rather than with judgment and rebuke, but with curiosity, with questions in, in the interest of learning <clears throat> without necessarily validating. Um, that would be great. And then the other issue you raise around how, if none of us are reading the same things, how could we ha- have any common culture? If Orthodox Jews and Reformed Jews are actually reading totally different books, our Judaism are gonna continue to diverge. If people are listening to CNN or Fox News, there's literally different living in different realities of America that are um, a whole different sense of what's happening. And so how do we have some ability to listen to things (laughs) that others are listening to and read things that others are listening to 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 bridge some of those divides. divides. Eileen, hi Eileen.
2: Hi, Uh, call me Esther today. Oh, we'll call you
0: Esther today, yes. (laughs)
2: Um, It seems to me that many, many people graduate, get a degree, and then they say, that's it. I've learned all there is to learn. And I find this extremely sad that they don't read or they won't explore. They won't go to a museum. They're (laughs) closed. And I'm not sure what the answer is. I suspect everybody here on the call um, is pursuing education because they're interested in creating more resources for themselves. Mm. And I, I think that probably distinguishes us from the majority of people. The second thing, um, I watch uh, Park Avenue Synagogue services. They are conservative. I am reformed. But I cannot tell you the difference in their service as compared to mine. They have an organ. They have a little orchestra. The music is the same. The sermons are good. So from my perspective, conservatism and reform seem to have come together in many aspects.
0: Great. Eileen, thanks for that. Um, yes, I think um, there are definitely national trends of how reformed Judaism and conservatism are really merging, are really ultimately merging based on um, both the reform movement uh, embracing a little bit more of a traditional approach over the last decade and the conservative movement moving left, um, and partially financial as well, is that the conservative movement kind of continues to collapse nationally. Uh, reform is growing, orthodox is growing in various ways, and conservative movement is struggling. Um, just like the middle, I mean, if you call conservative the middle, the middle is kind of collapsing in America also in some ways. But um, uh, yes, and to your first point, I love that around around the need for professional continued learning. Rabbi Zalman Schachter Shalomi, who was the founder of the renewal movement, kind of the hippy-dippy spiritual movement out of Boulder, Colorado. Um, he once said, yes, when you're ordained a rabbi, you become a rabbi, but until someone comes to you seeking God, you're not a rebbe." So too, it's like you may, get a, you, may get a, you may get your MD, right? But your MD on the wall doesn't make you a doctor. It kind of gives you the degree, right? You're the doctor when you're caring for people and continuing. And so too, like you have a wedding document on your wall, a ketubah or whatever, right? that's, that's the beginning, not the end. Some people view the degree or the, or the license as the end. Like I made it. Right. But that's the beginning of kind of, 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 the learning journey rather than the end. Beautiful. Yeah. Hi, Toby.
3: Hi, I've been gone for a while
0: and I missed you guys. Welcome back. Welcome back. Thank you.
3: A couple of things. Just expanding on what Eileen said, not only in your professional life, but as even when you retire, you, you, there's a lot of studies out there that show that seniors or people over whatever age you want to choose, if they continue learning things, um, they don't suffer from as much dementia or Alzheimer's disease or other brain degradations Mm. and things like that. And the same thing goes for physical. Uh, We're talking mostly about learning um, mental stuff, but uh, if you stop moving around when you, Get older, or even when you're young, um, your muscles don't like that, and your body doesn't like that. And uh, if you, you know, if you don't use it, you lose. It. Yes, I hate to use those kind of stereotypes, but it's really true. So that goes for both the physical and the mental continuation of learning.
0: That's so. That's so um, helpful, Toby. Yeah, the power of movement, physical and kind of mental movement to kind of, uh, you know, keep everything fresh and, um, and adaptive and, and, you know, um, plastic, I mean, you know, kind of, um, you know, in the sense of neuroplasticity, you know, Um, uh, and so thank you, thank you for that. And yeah, and that dementia point is so real. And, um, and oftentimes we think of learning as engaging in material that kind of confirms what I already know. Um, but that's actually not going to achieve that goal necessarily. It's like, it's that challenge. It's that cognitive dissonance. It's that disconnect that we have to work through that kind of enables us to kind of remain sharp. So thank you, Toby. And we're happy to have have your voice back here too, even though you're in Istanbul. Is that Istanbul? Uh, Yeah. Okay. Hi, Sarah. Hello. Um,
4: I'm I'm fascinated by a couple of things. Uh, One is that there are people in professions who continue to learn, but they only learn what they already know right they they in fact, I think about medicine and you become more and more specialized and you only read these journals and how many times I would look at my residents and they'd say "Well, how do you know that?" It was like, "Well, I was a doctor before I became an anesthesiologist okay and people just we narrow our vision i'm assuming because we fear that it's about our ego and how will we be seen what if i what if i don't know everything what if people see that i don't have answers oh my gosh who will i be and fear is a huge huge part of how we Lose that amazing curiosity that we came into the world with that desire to learn and grow and become, and people forget that we are constantly becoming. We are not finished. Right. I hope I'm not finished until I'm done. And um, the other part that, that I was interested in, in the, our, Your production was the kids and the kids who benefit, I know from meditation, now I'm learning from yoga, but I'm also curious because a lot of those children also who are showing up with many of those difficulties are suffering from trauma and significant trauma. And the trauma doesn't go away. Yes, we may help them control some of their behaviors, but unless those underlying uh, issues are addressed, then yeah, behavior in school particularly will be better or at home, but these children are still going to struggle and suffer and find ways of coping in the world. So I, I don't want to lose sight of that.
0: Yeah, And I'm complete. Thank you, Sarah, so much there. Yeah, it's really amazing because we, we, our physical growth stops. We're like, you know, in our teen years or, you know, or wherever, wherever it stops for us. But our mental uh, development doesn't. And we think like, oh, that stuff was all for my youth. I was curious when I was two and I was growing when I was a teenager. But, um, you know, it's interesting. We used to think of there was childhood and there were teenage years and then there was adulthood. But uh, just a few decades ago, the developmental psychologists invented the stage called emerging adulthood, which was between, you know, teen, teen years and adulthood. And at first they thought that was 18 to 26. The psychologist said, that's why birthright made, made those years 18 to 26, because of the psychological studies that, that that time was called emerging adulthood. But then they expanded it. They said, actually, emerging adulthood doesn't have 26. It actually goes much longer than that. And they had these five categories of what defines adulthood. Right. Things that may feel arbitrary, things like having a life partner, having your own you know, home, having a career, you know, these these, you know, having a child even said these things that kind of these milestones that moved someone to this next stage of kind of maturation. But but in addition to that, there's adult development. Bob Keegan, who is a, is a psychologist, is the, one of the greatest scholars of this, Robert Keegan on adult development and people are, are oftentimes fall into just playing defense, defense, meaning I'm just going to deal with my problems as they come. Okay, fine. I got to grieve. Now my parent died. Oh, now I got to deal with this health challenge. I'm just my, I'm just playing defense as opposed to offensively, so to speak, kind of actively pushing to next developmental stages as one does when they're going from third grade to fourth grade, or as they do when they're leaping from high school to college. How do we actually create our own life curriculum actively rather than passively just responding to the bad things that happen around us and so um that's exciting that's exciting you know because we do have to play defense especially as we get older and challenges become more often but we haven't built in these life cycles it was like okay there's a celebration of our birth and then we have a bar bat mitzvah and then we graduate high school graduate college we get married we have a baby woohoo and then all those things stop and then it's like okay death you right so like, how do we build more milestones in there to kind of celebrate growth? And one of the things I love about Judaism actually is a siyum. We're gonna have a little siyum. A siyum is a, a celebration of completion of learning. When we completion this complete these, this 40 part series of kindness, next week, uh, next week, we will have the chance to kind of celebrate like, wow, look, what a thing to commit 40 weeks to thinking about kindness. I mean, how many living people or people of the past committed 40 weeks of their lives to like thinking about how to be more kind in the world. Um, and so that's a milestone to celebrate. So, yeah, thank you. Yes, Gary.
1: I'd like to respond to, uh, to Sarah for a moment, uh, concerning fear. Uh, now that I'm 70, hard to believe, uh, and kind of semi-retired, uh, I, I don't have any fear of, of, I am my days are going to end but it's it's not a personal fear is that I can't I can't find enough time in the in the day to do all my reading uh to continue to research uh I've always had a thirst for knowledge even as a kid and uh I just you know there's so much to learn in the world that uh I just can't seem to find enough time in the day to to quench that thirst uh, you know, I, I was Schmuly this morning. I'm here. You know, I have some professional things I need to do. I want to read this article, that article. I want to read this book and that book. And uh, I, to me, that's that's I'm self-directed learning, which I've always said. Uh, and I think that, uh, uh, and to add what Schmuly says, as, as we've gotten older, uh, that uh, that that thirst, that that uh, defense, or me more offensive. Uh, is is better than being uh, defensive, and so I just wanted to respond to to Sarah that it's not an internal fear; it's just that there's so much out there. I don't want to I don't want to miss anything. It's like going to Disneyland. I don't want to miss any ride. You know, I'll stand in line for hours and hours to get to that one ride, and uh, so it's <laughs> yeah, it's that, love that, that same idea.
0: Love that you know, and that resonates for me a lot too. Like there's this learning space, and then there's all these distractions from that learning space but I wonder if we can think of those distractions from the learning space as the learning space also, right? Rather than trusting authorities, we read things and we trust them. How do we experiment with it, right? Like, you know, try, try this yourself. You know, we read something and then let's go try it out. Let's see how that feels in the world. And, um, and viewing that as a learning space as well, like the, pra- the practice space and then the, and then, and then, and then the reflection space. And yes, but Gary, your point resonates for me a lot of like, like, I just have this, these books stacked up right now. I'm like, how am I going to get to this stuff? And <laughs> um, yes, and Eileen, I, I see you unmuted yourself.
2: Yeah, and Um, speed reading. Uh, um, the greatest thing of being retired is that I'm in four different book clubs. And as you know, I read a lot of books. But I learn and it's enjoyable and it adds, I think, more to my character than not. Um, I think the pursuit of learning is something that maybe is taught at an early age, depending upon your home life. And all I can say is my home life, because my dad was an educator, focused on learning. And the fact that I graduated and had a degree, I got a second degree, went on for a third, didn't change the intellectual curiosity that I had and still have. And I find that that curiosity has led me to experience a lot more things. And I think without the curiosity, um, I probably would be overeducated, but (coughs) under um, responsive to
0: life. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Esther. Beautiful, love it. And um, you know, I actually, one of the ways I might diagnose actually uh, our problem of assimilation in the American Jewish community is not just that, you know, the product is bad, Judaism is is not interesting, um, and also not just, you know, blaming the customer, so to speak, in the sense that, you know, that they're, you know, anti, anti-religion anti or anti-tradition or whatever the case is. But I think actually part of our failure has been in cultivating this spirit of, of learning. And in many ways, the American Jewish community has become very materialistic, that the pursuit of wealth um, and and just the obsession with entertainment distracts from just this sense of commitment to learning, that if you, look at, if you look at the trends of careers that Jews were interested in a few decades ago, and you look at it today, it's really narrowed, and not to be judgmental towards those, those fields because people can pursue whatever they want, um, but if, if the majority of Jews are, are pursuing three or four types of careers, rather than the full range, um, what's that about? and what's happened to kind of our intellectual culture that has kind of a breadth and depth to it. And how do we reawaken that? That a lot of Jews aren't showing up, not because of a barrier to God or a barrier to community or religion, but oftentimes because they're not interested in learning. They're interested in making money and watching a good movie. You know, I want entertainment and and, and money. And that's not being overcritical of of anyone, nothing wrong with entertainment, nothing wrong with making money. But like, how do we reawaken that Jewish ethos of like being a, a community of learning and raise children and grandchildren like that that are intrigued and curious, I mean, um, in the world. Okay, Ethan, over to you.
5: I um, had two quick points. The the first is not super tangential to the, the point you just made, but I'll, I'll come back to that. I just wanted to touch on a, a subcategory of learning that I think we have delved into here, which is learning about ourselves um rabbi you've talked about meditation um and there are a variety of different ways that we can go through our lives in which we are educating ourselves about who we are the platform that we stand on the morals that we believe in um a a wide variety of finding sort of who we are in our identity and i just want to to take a moment um to challenge everyone in this room to uh Think about the privilege that we may or may not have um, in our ability to do that. Um, for example, I was thinking about a, a good friend of mine who is a trans person and going through the, the transitioning of, of genders right now. And I was talking to them recently about the difficulty because of um, their gender identity um, to freely and um easily uh, express themselves and learn about themselves and in, in understanding uh, who they are as a person. And so I, I think it's important for for all of us when we think about this, um, not only to think about what is our prospects of learning about ourselves, but also how can we make it easier, more accessible for others to learn about themselves as well? Because I do think that it's an incredibly important part of our maturation process is that um, education about ourselves. Um, The the second point that I was going to make that that is more tangential to to what you just talked about, Rabbi, is um, in your opening question, you talked about um, one response was, I I don't enjoy learning uh, about others or or, or learning because I enjoy entertainment. Um, And I wonder, you know, I think this room is a very unique room of People who are interested and excited about learning, I would wonder if we pose that poll to a, a broader audience. How many people would, if they had to respond authentically and truly, would choose that bullet point um, because they're more interested in getting on social medias and finding a, a quick sort of dopamine hit instead of really doing challenging learning that is going to make us uncomfortable and, and push us where we are, and so. Um, you know, I would again ask the, the room to consider how do we inspire others to do what is already happening in this room, um, but to do it outside of this room and, and help others who who may not be as interested in learning do it because I think we all agree it's so important. In an act fascinating
0: points, yeah, Ethan. Fascinating points. Thank you for that. And yeah, and that's a good challenge to ourselves as well when we want that dopamine hit rather than going going even deeper. You know, and on your first point. There was a famous mystic who said something like, know yourself and you'll know God, right? Which is to say the deeper we go into ourselves. And it's interesting that you brought up the trans folks because sometimes more marginalized populations have more of a self-awareness because they've had to go kind of deeper. For example, white folks in America often talk about blackness, right? But how many white people have a conversation of whiteness? Like, what does it mean to be white, right? Like, as opposed to just not being black, right? And so too, a lot more women have had conversations of what it means to be a woman. Lots of various feminist literature and women's groups. How many men are in men's groups being like, what does it mean to be a man in kind of a healthy way today? And queer folks think about their sexuality um, or in their gender identities in ways that people who haven't, We're just kind of raised straight, straight. Think of that as, oh, I'm in the normal camp, right? This is normal and that's different, right? As opposed to kind of examining what is taken for granted, right? Oh, I'm a white straight man. And so that's the normal thing. And then there's like these other folks we should understand without understanding oneself. And so there is this interesting task of like taking the parts of ourselves we take for granted as just being normal and actually examining that. Well, what what does that mean to me? Why am I that? That's also true for those who just took for granted that they were Jewish in in a certain sense as well. Yeah. So thank you for that. And um, yeah, I think I think sometimes there is a depth to minorities um, because they've gone through that examination process. Like, do I want to be Jewish publicly or just privately? Like in being trans, like I had to go through some journey of discovery of who I am. Right? the the, the discovery is not just external. What career am I going to do? Who's my life partner? What house am I going to live in? But like, who am I at my core? You know, and um, and that too should be lifelong discovery, uh, a lifelong journey. If we believe there's many layers there. So yes, back to you, Esther. <laughs>
2: um, I have three lovely grandchildren, and when I stay with them, one of my objectives is to make them curious about the world around them and to offer them things that they normally wouldn't do. So um, at Thanksgiving, we had a high tea. My grandson did the invitations. One of my granddaughters set the table. The other one made the food and they loved it. We had a great time. Uh, when I go up there, we have a painting class a la Bob Ross which they also enjoy. My daughter takes them every weekend on a walk in a forest where they look at nature and look at the changes and what's happening. So we are trying to instill intellectual curiosity at an early age, knowing that that will continue to grow. Um, The other thing, when you talked about women's groups, uh, I am a member of a wise aging group, which theoretically is for mixed people over 60. As it turns out, mostly women. <laughs> Very few men join. And I think many men could uh, learn and get some emotional support from being in these groups. And yet, nope, it's the women. Now we're going to live longer and we're going to have to do things on our own. And we're going to have to learn how to have the resilience. But here we are meeting every week and talking about aging. We are proactive, which I think is the word we want to
0: use. Yeah. Thank you, Eileen. Yeah, we do have a challenge today on boys and men's participation in general. Um, boys and men's friendships are on, are declining, membership is declining, um, and girls and women continue to be more collective in many ways. And uh, part of this has the relationship to shame and vulnerability of how we share in groups um that men kind of have a different relationship to this vulnerability and and public sharing than than women often do because of, of course these are generalizations but in, in general um and uh yeah and there's really a lot to gain from that and how and what do we and what do we do what do we do with that? Um, and just like um just like men need to step back in a lot of spaces in society to create more more room for women um so too like, I wonder in how some of those spaces, women might also think about, like, how do we make space for men to share here differently, right? How do we create space for each other in, in different ways so that everyone can kind of be here? And I know this is happening in Jewish life, too. Some of the recent stats I saw were that seven out of 10 or even eight out of 10 of participants in programming are girls, not boys, and are women, not men. Um, that men are kind of fading out of Judaism, kind of they call it the feminization of Judaism, of liberal Judaism. Of course, that's outside of Orthodoxy. Orthodoxy is a whole different phenomenon. But um, yeah, so thank you for flagging that. And I think um, there's really, yeah, please.
2: Perhaps some of the outreach should be geared to forming men's group, because I think men are more comfortable sharing with other men rather than having a mixed group. But yeah, I absolutely agree. All the committees and I'm on lifelong learning. It's women, 99%. Right,
0: right. Thank you. Steve, did I see you? Are you gonna jump in with us, Steve? No, yes or no? Yes, good.
6: Hi, hi, hi. Um, Just a couple of things. And again, I've loved every letter and word and breath from everybody today. I mean, it's so invigorating. I wish that was the answer to Ethan's uh, quest for different crowds. Uh, uh, I always think to, to an, enhance one's interest in a certain thing that we're interested in, entertainment and free food goes a long, a long, long way. Um, in the beginning, you were talking about learning with others. I, I, I love that. And I cannot think of one thing. Well, I actually can think of two things in my life where I would not want to be with another person, but most everything in my life is enhanced by celebrating or learning or doing with somebody else. I get so much excitement just from proximity. And, and uh, so I can understand how learning with others uh, can really enhance one's self-learning. Number two you, you use the phrase search for God. And I, want, I, I can't even imagine the end to that search for God. And I'm wondering if God is afraid of being discovered. And one of the reasons I say that is that somebody told me she had ADHD. And I said, what is that? And she said, the fear of being discovered. We don't want to let people know that we don't know. We're afraid of admitting um, our, our weaknesses. I d- I don't know if she is right on that. Um, but in fact, one of the worst things about being 80 is I can't remember where I'm going with half the sentences <laughs> that I start. So you'll have to excuse me. It makes sense to me. Um, it
0: makes sense to me what you're saying. Yeah.
6: But I'll, I'll just, and there is God afraid of being discovered. And number two, I love being close to people in almost any of it. Uh,
0: you, you left us all curious of what, what two things are that you don't want someone to be with you. You don't have to share that if you don't want, but you uh, left us all curious.
6: <laughs> you don't even have to use your ima- imagination for the, one of those things. Okay,
0: going to the bathroom, perhaps. Uh, yes. It's probably one of them. Yes. Okay. And you get a hundred dollars for that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and the other one will uh yeah, we'll 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 to you know yeah you know, uh, imagination. Yeah. But thank you. Uh yeah, this uh, this notion of um yeah fear of being discovered is uh, is a fascinating point. In fact, today on Purim, one of the ideas of why we, we wear masks, we wear costumes is a reminder, um to learn how to take them off, um, we kind of practice putting on a mask and taking it off on Purim. To learn that we're kind of always wearing different layers of masks, and to learn how to take them off in in the willingness to be discovered, to be seen, and that can be very scary because, unfortunately, our society and I don't know whether to blame our society or whether it's a perennial problem uh, has has given us a deep sense of insecurity of who we are, that we have been. Um, You know, raised and cultivated to think we're just not enough. I don't know enough. I don't, um, at my core, I'm not enough. And we were, many of us were praised as kids for things we did well rather than for being good at our core, right? If we're only praised for things we do well, we find our value in those things we do as opposed to in our core. And so we're constantly trying to hide our core because we don't feel it's good enough. And, um, and what it means to turn that towards God is, is a fascinating question, Steve, of what it means, uh, you know, to not be found. You know, it's like that old, that old story around um, the child who is uh, playing hide and seek and then finds that no one is even looking for her. And she's crying, realizing the kids have moved on. They're not even looking for her. Right. The sense of like what it means to not be sought out, what it means to not want like, that you don't feel somebody wants to kind of discover you. Um, so thank you. Thank you for that. And Heschel, Heschel has his book, um uh Man in Search of God, but then he has a different book called God in Search of Man, um, of like who is seeking who actually.
7: Eric, over to you. Thank you. This has been really wonderful. Uh, I, I think that we it's been great topic talked about regarding constantly learning, but the betterment of who. And I know that there has been focus on other topics. Um, previous weeks where uh, that the, you know, focus inwards in order, you know, to focus on oneself inwards and able to be the betterment of, uh, you know, to outwards. And, but also this idea of, you know, mitzvah, performing a mitzvah is doing, you know, doing good deeds towards, uh, you know, community, you know, towards others, the nuclear family, community, whatever the, the, the direction is. But I wonder if the constantly learning approach The way that Judaism, the Jewish um, scholars are kind of advocating is the constantly learning, not just towards God, but is it constantly learning the priority towards inward again with the betterment that then if I am constantly learning inwards, then I can be able to apply what I've learned, you know, Outwards, because I'm wondering if that is the approach of what they're uh, that's been advocated. Versus, I am learning, knowing I'm going to be me and be able to act on it towards the benefit of community, towards the benefit of society, my shul, my my family, my friends. I wondered what's been the. I, I wonder if that's the direction that um, that uh, Jewish scholars are taking when it comes to the idea of he's 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 not mute.
0: Beautiful, Eric. Thank you so much for that. And you remind me of the great Pirkei Avot that is worth looking at again around why do we choose to learn something? Is it just in order to teach it? Is it in order to practice it? Right? Why are we learning something? Is it learning Lishma, learning for its own sake? And um, I love what you said, kind of learning for the inward purpose um, and only kind of secondarily kind of for that outward outward, uh, performance. Sometimes We learn things that are just urgent for us to learn, like how to build this desk I now need to use, right? Um, But how do we learn things and allow it to kind of transform us and not be so clear yet what it's gonna mean externally or how we're going to use it? Um, You know, I I, I, I read recently that one court, excuse me, 40% of those who go to a psychologist um, their core reason for going they may not know this at first is unresolved grieving, unresolved grieving, forty percent it said isn't it astounding, not depression mm-hmm. or anxiety, right? Um, that actually their parent or spouse or child or somebody died in their life, and they never really went through the full grieving process, or they did, and it's still unresolved and um uh, and you know, just like if somebody is, uh, you know, has deep fatigue, you can't just use caffeine to get through it. You actually have to sleep. Sleep is not going to be enough, but the first thing you got to do is sleep. So too, if one has to grieve, the first thing you got to do is actually grieve. And a lot of people in our society turn away from that. And so too, like a deep part of learning is going through the internal journey that our life at that moment requires of us. And so oftentimes there's an illness, but we don't look at it, right? There's a grieving, but we don't deal with it. There's a uh, something changing within us that we don't fully kind of immerse in, in, in a learning in a way that then creates a disorder. Um, a disorder where our, our, our one of the ways to think of this disorder is when what we call a mood, mistakenly, um, when we have kind of a deep emotional reaction to something that, that um, is not kind of triggered externally. Um, it's kind of unpredictable. It means something kind of unresolved over there and um and so this disorder that comes with an unresolved grieving. and so too, like there's things that happen in our lives that we never fully learned through. Something traumatic or 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 even positive happened, but we never kind of immersed in the learning about it, immersed in the curiosity about it and and so it's sitting in us unresolved in a way that's begging us to return to. And so, um, yeah, Eric, thanks for that. And so I do think that this type of Jewish learning, it starts inward. It starts in a deep kind of internal transformative journey before it goes outwards. Yeah, let's take one more person. Yes, Gary.
1: Sorry to monopolize. I just, uh, since we're at at a VBM group, I don't know uh, how many of you have been around with VBM, but it was interesting that VBM started way back when, when a group of uh, uh, Jewish adults said, we want more learning. Uh, that they weren't getting from synagogues and other institutions. Uh, and here we are, uh, I don't know, 20, 15 years or whatever later uh, that we've expanded to, to this, this type of learning. So uh, it's interesting. There are Jews that are adults that want to continue their learning. And I just one final comment about, about learning, Jewish learning, uh, that I think one of the things that the progressive movements have failed in is that Jewish learning stops at age 13, and, and then we're done. Uh, and in and, and and Orthodox Judaism, Bar Mitzvah is just the beginning uh, of their learning. And actually, conservative Judaism back in the 50s or 60s had, had really contemplated about Bar Mitzvah at 16, not at 13. Uh, so a lot of us, uh, as even our educated Jews, still look at uh, Judaism as what I call pediatric Judaism. We've never moved beyond that. And I think that's one of the issues of keeping uh, adult Jews connected to Judaism, because they constantly still see it as, as a big man in the sky with a, a gray beard and not understand there's so much more depthness to Judaism that guides us to to, to living.
0: Love also, that, love that. Yes, and I, and as as Eileen posted on the side, yeah, the reform, I, and I haven't read studies on whether it's been successful or not, but the reform movement's attempt to respond to that was, yeah, the, the confirmation process. But we need so much more. Yeah, I mean, you're right. What a shunda that like, there's this two years of immersing to prepare for a bat, bar Bot mitzvah. And it ends and literally it's like checked out, out the door. It's like they memorize this Torah portion, which is irrelevant to their lives. And then are just to- totally disinterested. Because it like was so it burned them out, but yeah. I and I, I one other thing. And your, your your fair critique about the failure of progressive, uh, progressive camps as well is, I think that the death of learning is partially due to ideology. Ideology means like I have a kind of a neat system of thought tied up with a bow, and anything that doesn't fit in with that ideology, I am conservative. I am progressive. I am a reformed Jew, Orthodox Jew. Anything that doesn't fit into my ideology, just discard it. Right. And ideology is so deadening, right, in terms of like of uh, of these identities that we're so committed to. And anything that doesn't fit into that identity and that ideology has to be discarded. And that's why I would love to see a post-ideological Judaism. We move away from denominations, we move move away from just partisan simplicity into like a realm of like, huh, I'm gonna consider a whole bunch of ideas that that counter like, like narrow ideologies. So friends, in that spirit of Heath Lum tooth, I hope uh, we all continue to learn together and learn uh, in isolated spaces, whether it's in the bathroom or whatever the second place is that we don't want people with us. <laughs> and next week will be session 40, session 40 of kindness. And then we're going to r- launch into looking at the 40 greatest philosophers. and our our potential relationship to them, wishing everyone a happy Purim and a reminder that the greatest mitzvah of Purim, according to Maimonides, is gifts to the poor today. This is a day to help take care of the poor. If you can't come with us at three o'clock to help to go down to the zone to deliver stuff, maybe find another way to make a contribution physically or monetary um, where you can do something for the poor today. That is the highest manifestation of, of Purim, according to Maimonides. Have a wonderful day and happy Purim!